Hey everybody, welcome back to the Iron Works Podcast. I'm Pastor Tyler. And I'm Zach. And Zach and I were just having a little discussion just now. Zach just finished reading an American classic novel. You just finished reading Moby Dick, sir. Yeah, first How time, was that? Uh, it was better than when I read it in high school. Um, I had read it in high school and had decided that it, it was... Did it get better since then? I don't know, maybe. Um, <laughs> maybe I got better. I, I read it in high school and decided it was terrible and everybody who liked it was crazy. And then I read it again... And I, and that's the thing, Tyler. I don't know if you. I think you were like this too. When you were in high school, did you did you have this policy of like, if I'm assigned the book, I'm just gonna hate it? No, I didn't. No, I, I was I, I was a book nerd all yeah, the way through. Same way. And the only ones that just didn't do anything for me and still don't were like Jane Eyre. Like that, that was just, that one was weird. I remember. <laughs> yeah, I don't remember. Yeah, I didn't like the only ones that I really didn't like in high school where I could not do Dickens except for Christmas Carol. But like I didn't like Dickens and Moby Dick, man, just drove me crazy. So I read it again. It was it's better. I think it's better if you're like older and you don't mind a book that takes its time a little bit. But right. it still takes too much time. I read Moby Dick last year. Finally, I've never actually read it before. I have this cool copy of it with like the whale breaching and they've got like harpoons and yeah. stuff. And I uh, it, it was better than I thought it would be. I remember trying to read it and it was just impossible. But um, yeah, I can see I can see why it's an enduring classic, especially if you look at the other stuff from around that time. He would have been. Uh, just post Civil War is when this was written because I know um, author Rami, the author of Moby Dick. What's his name? Melville. Melville. Uh, he writes about uh, that city up in New England where Frederick Douglass actually was a was working and living at that time, and people oh, believe that the two that. of them would have had interactions and, and known or known of each That's other, which is pretty cool. But where this conversation led, ladies and gentlemen, is uh, we. Moby Dick is great, but it certainly has this strain of noble, savage, back to nature. The pagans on the islands understand God and can navigate the world better than we can. And there's so many like corrupt, hypocritical Christians and, you know, primitive Christianity maybe had it right, but that's because they were in tune with like the gods. There's, there's like the, all these like pagan heathen characters in it that are kind of held up as the good guys that's a lot of like early american stuff too like i'm just trying to think now like uh cooper the um what's the james book? fenimore cooper yeah the, so um, the, the transcendentalists this year yeah yeah so like his, that's his, the last of the mohicans yeah, guy, last of the mohicans is very like i mean it's a great book but it's it's very like oh yeah you know this guy understands what what life is about because he's living in connection to nature and in connection to his fellow man and you know um there's what, a whole I mean, scene in last of the mohicans where the 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 Christian musician who's sort of like the comic relief character, like at one point uh, is talking about God and then um, Hawkeye starts saying, you know, I don't need your, you know, your book. I believe God is everywhere. And he's like, well, sh quote me chapter and verse for that friend. And which is kind of what we would say, you know, and then Hawkeye comes back and he says, you know, when I hear the wind in the trees and when I see the, you know, the fish jumping out of the water and I smell the acorns, right. that's my te temple that's and sanctuary. Church, and, yeah, yeah. You know, and I'm sure, you know, when he wrote that, I mean, I'm sure there are lots of people that read that and go, oh, that's so beautiful. I just read that and I just go, ugh. Oh, <laughs> come that. on, We've man. We've all met that uh, pothead. <laughs> that's, that's what that is. It's, it's well, proto. Well, what this conversation led us to is, like, it's a shame that, like, okay, Moby Dick is a good book. I love Last of the Mohicans, too. However, like, so much of the great American canon is infected with this, this anti-God or at least anti-Christian strain and Zach, so many of them are communists. 
like actual straight up communists writing in these things. American literature, like yeah. I, John yeah. Steinbeck in *The Grapes of Wrath*, yes. for example, where the preacher decides, "I'm not going to be a preacher anymore." I was never really okay with the telling people that they couldn't sleep around whenever they wanted because that's just part of life, and life's hard enough. And why am I taking that away from them? Instead, he's going to become a union organizer, and he's going to get <laughs> the people to fight for for their rights. And like the there's all like this inverted like gender roles even and. You know, people live on the land and they should be able to stay on the land and nobody knows who's in charge. Is this really like anti-capitalist, super red book. And, and to the point that like, it, it's uh, not like you hear us laughing. It's like there's, you know, I Tyler and I both like to read a lot. So if you like to read a lot, you're going to come across stuff that you just disagree with in a book. And usually you're like, oh, OK, like I, I disagree with that. But at least at least, hey, at least they stated it in a way that made me think. And I, I had to think, OK, why do I not think or believe that? And that's great. I'm fine with that. But sometimes you come across these things. And yeah, I agree. For some reason, it's a big American thing that we do is all of our writers. Maybe it's not just American. Now that I'm thinking about it. But a lot of our writers, they it's it's not just that it's slightly you know they think through politics slightly left of center it's the whole thing is is so saturated with that and it's done in such a ham-fisted way like yeah, exactly that, like that. that's how grapes of wrath was now here's the thing grapes of wrath is also incredibly well written and it is really compelling but if you know it's sort of like today when you go to a movie and like you if you're like me and you're very familiar with the postmodern you know woke philosophy like and they're just doing the playbook in front of you and they say something and go you lifted that right out of what's his name's thing and you're acting like when they just do that that's what uh grapes of wrath was for me and and there's you know even we said great gatsby a little bit which is like you know the little man can never get ahead but old money's gonna keep you down and that's america and you you know you can't ever reach your dream because you know there's so many people standing and so many things are standing in between you like you know and, right and the things are traditional marriage and you know, like <laughs> yes, all the, you know right. like the, yeah so yeah you know and I, I we were talking about okay is there is there like a great author that wasn't into that kind of stuff in the Americans and I talked about oh, Hemingway Hemingway was my favorite author he definitely had some some commie sympathies at least a lot of these people did pre uh pre-Stalin like once it got mm-hmm. out what Stalin That's was true. doing like they're like okay you know what maybe this isn't just well you know the you answer know, don't for you? fun is here in but... America a lot of we've got and this is again not just America guys but this is what we're familiar with we had this very like the split happened where if you were very liberal you went to like literary fiction because that was adult and for smart people was how it was branded and if you were not and you were conservative you went to genre fiction yeah. which is why a lot of your which like, is now of course infected with the same it is now but it used to be and and some of it is actually coming back around but it used to be that like you know if you were right wing you went and wrote science fiction and fantasy stuff because those were considered those were places where you did these very traditional themes Mm -hmm. very like you you know that's why you've got your when you think of fantasy you you think of lewis and tolkien both british but again both traditionalists those are stories about tradition and and how many more people have read that well that's the latest the latest deep red Uh, uh you know yeah literature yeah so we were just we were just talking about that and that's just you know that could be its own you know its own podcast really but we're just we're having fun sometimes we like to open up y'all know with just uh some conversation here but uh that's kind of being a Christian in the world is you're going to encounter movies and music and, and reading that is going to be very skilled and very talented, but is going to be engaging with themes and ideas that are not worthy of the skill that somebody's using. And being able to sort through those is important. 
Uh, and yeah, it's also sometimes you've got to reach a point. I often do where it's like, you know what? No, thank you. I, I'm not I'm not even going to bother with this because you're putting forth these ridiculous ideas. But I'm afraid if I soak myself in them for too long, that I'll start to you know absorb some of it. That's but, true. Yeah. But anyway, we're going to continue today our series on the Trinity. This is part three. We have actually seven of these planned out. This is going to be our longest series by far. I think that's appropriate, though, because this is really, this is one of the, as far as I'm concerned, like top three or four subjects that Christians need to know about, especially as, um, you know, we believe the Trinity, but I don't know how many people can really say I can explain it and I understand it. And that's... That's a shame, really. We ought to be able to explain what we believe and un- explain it and understand it. And, and I'll tell you, lately, I've been coming across a lot of folks in our church and, and even around uh, seeing online that people are questioning the Trinity, not so much from like an aggressive standpoint, like, I don't believe that, but just remind me again what, what that is. Wondering, maybe. Yeah, like, word, well, why, why do we say that? Now, if that's true, yeah. how is this? And what we've been trying to do through this podcast more than anything else is to sh- lay out for you what the doctrine actually is. Because as I've said on this show already, many people don't understand the Trinity because they don't understand the entirety of the doctrine. It's not just God in three persons. That's the basic definition. But there's all these supporting and correlating, uh, you call them sub-doctrines, beneath that, that uphold this whole thing that we believe. And if you lose some of those, it might not make as much sense to you, or you can start to criticize something that you don't even fully understand. Well, they've never even thought of this. It's like, well, we probably have. After this long, (laughs) we've probably thought of your objection to the doctrine of the Trinity. (laughs) And so we're going to continue with that today. And uh, Zach, would you, do you think that's fair to say that most people are, are on board with the doctrine of the Trinity, but you ask them to explain it and they're just... Maybe they're get a little intimidated trying to talk about it. Yeah, I'd say for the average believer, I think it's it's one of those things that goes on the on the um, doctrinal statement of, of your church, and so you read it one time and you say, yeah, that if that, that's what the Bible teaches, and my pastor says that's what it is. So I, you know, I've always I, I know that that's true, and you agree because you learned it in Sunday school. But I think we, there's a lot of times if if yeah, if you were asked to explain it, or if someone, and this is where I notice this happens, if somebody who has spent a lot of time coming up with some other explanation that is not correct that's heretical they come to you and say well what about this what about that you can find out really quickly i haven't actually thought about this as much as i thought i had Mm -hmm. because they've got you know they ask you one or two of these weird gotcha questions based on misinterpreting one verse you know remember we talked about i think on the last episode how you encounter this with cults very frequently we used to even see this in back in in virginia where you you someone will you know well i think i got approached in a target one time by somebody who came from a cultic background and was asking about well you know this verse means that god has to have be more than three or less than three or something they were very confused Mm-hmm. But a lot of times th- those encounters help people realize, oh, I, I need to actually go back and understand this and not just agree to it. Right. Right. And of course it can be understood and it should be. That's a good thing to want to do. It's not a, it's not like they're doubting and, and that's bad. You know, it's no, it's you're coming and saying, Lord, explain to me this thing that you've laid out in your scripture. And, and that's that's a good thing. But I do think we we need to do a little more of that with the Trinity. Yeah. And as we get on through the series, we're going to show you how this really can just enliven your Christian life and your prayers and your worship and your your reading of the word. Man, once you understand the Trinity and you start reading, especially the New Testament, you're just going to start. Whoa, there it is again. Whoa, there it is again. It's 
all over the place, and not just in the Trinitarian formulae that we read last time, but uh, in just the way that the, the Scripture talks. And then you start to go, okay, now you, you see this threefold pattern, even in the Old Testament sometimes, where a Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. So let's remind ourselves of the basic definition uh, coming from the Athanasian Creed, which I encourage you all to go out, read it, memorize it. For all I care, it's, it's important for you to read this. But mm-hmm. uh, Athanasius, our... our favorite guy on this subject says we worship one god pause right there we worship one god in trinity so that is threeness threeness and unity we worship one god in trinity and trinity and unity neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance so persons and substance these are the things that we're talking about substance can also be essence just to remind you there is only one being in the entirety of existence that has the characteristic of godness that has the substance of god and that being is jehovah yahweh our lord that we worship that god that we serve is the only one that has the characteristic of of divinity true actual divinity only one we only worship one however that Jehovah God, Yahweh is three persons, Mm. three persons, three hypostases is a word that is used for this, that there are three distinctions within the Godhead, three subsistences is another way of putting it. And some people really don't like us using the word person, even though the Latin is persona, because they say, well, it doesn't necessarily mean that there are people. It it refers to three equal distinctions. But I, I like to say, we believe that the subsistences are personal, so the term persons works just fine. Yeah. The problem is when people start to say persons, oh, I know what a person is. It's, it's different from somebody else, but not necessarily. We, we're using that word in such a definition to imply only that uh, essential nature of what a person is, that it's not, oh, you have to have a different body. Well, no, God is different in that way. So three persons who are one God One God and Trinity, Trinity and unity, and the two errors that we try not to avoid are confounding the persons, meaning we don't confuse the Father and the Holy Spirit or the Son and the Father. We don't confound them. We don't blend them together. We don't blend them together, right? Nor do we divide the substance. You never want to talk about the Trinity in such a way that they are in opposition to one another. We are not recreating a pantheon here. And if you come across those that did that, well, they don't speak for us. They're wrong. There's only one substance or essence, and there are three persons, hypostases, subsistences. This is the orthodox way to understand how God is revealed to us in Scripture. And that's what we looked at last time is the the Bible, the how the Bible describes God to us, drives us to this conclusion. And we want to do a little bit more of that today, that uh, when we talk about these three and this this one, that in order for all of this that we're talking about to be true, Number one, each one of these that we talk about, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, have to be declared in the Bible to be personal and have to be declared in the Bible to be divine, right? Otherwise, Zach, we're we're not dealing with what we're describing. We're dealing with uh, maybe angels. We're dealing with other beings or even other gods. So each one has to be divine and personal. And I think we can make a pretty good case for that in the scripture, don't you? Well, yeah, and and that's why sometimes even there's like a a disagreement over like individual appearances of we talked about the angel of the Lord, remember? And some people say no, that that there isn't that's not an appearance of Jesus pre-incarnate because they're trying to argue from the text that there's some reason why based on the text that person isn't 
that a, a personal divine you know but if you can point at anybody and say yes that's that there in the text that's a personal divine you know occasion of someone in, interacting with god then you're talking about someone interacting with one of the persons of the trinity right so let's start with the father so we have the father the son and the holy spirit the father is the easy one because most people are willing to concede this to some degree or another uh, that the father is personal and the father is divine um, well, I'm going to read Isaiah 45, 5, which I think kind of hits us with a double whammy. Although I think most people, as I said, will go with us on this one. I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me. Well, the first thing I notice here, Zach, is that we have a person speaking. Now, I. Yeah, right, I, right, right. Mm-hmm. me, speaking you, using these these pronouns. Now, Zach, we want to respect God's pronouns, do we not? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, yes. I did, not to, yeah, I know it's kind of a joke now, unfortunately, but yeah, we do. When God, gosh, any statement that God makes about himself, we want to honor it and listen to it and, and not, you know, to pay attention because it's it's a revelation of him. So when God comes to us and speaks, some of the things we should be paying attention to are, well, God uses personal pronouns and he uses verbs of himself. Like he's, I, the Lord, am doing this. I'm, 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 what does he say in that? In that I in equip that you, yeah, help me out. Yeah. right? Besides me, there is no God, right? I mean, you, that's, things don't say that. No. Besides me, there right. is no bush. It's like bushes don't, Say that because they're not personal. He's they're not defining. Alive. He's defining himself by certain things, and yeah, we certainly should pay attention to that. And I also that kind of that passage also does maybe not entirely, but it does some of both of those things. Oh, it totally about. does. Mm-hmm. Besides me, there is no God. Right here's so it's divine, God right? asserting, "I'm God, ain't nobody else." Mm-hmm. I am God. So the divinity of the Father is clear. Uh, many people might be willing to concede that there is a God, but they have a hard time conceiving of a personal God, which mm. is sort of strange to me. You know, they they kind of have this comic book view of like there's this cosmic ooze out there in space, and that's what made everything. And Or kind and, of like a deist watchmaker, like, oh, yeah, right. sure. God, somebody had to create this, but I don't think he cares about me. I don't think he knows, you know, do, do, he's not going to do anything or be involved. You know, a lot of people think that. Um, yeah, so that would be much less of a, it's not the personal God that's revealed in Scripture. Right, and I can, um, we can actually take a small rabbit trail here. It seems that lately, I think this is some Japanese influence, honestly, just from like Japanese culture and art. But the the joke from about Japanese anime is that it's teenagers using the power of friendship to kill God. Like that's that's what happens in every uh-huh. every anime, and it's it's not like you know God in heaven. But there's this belief that well, okay, some a God is defined as somebody that is so incredibly powerful that nobody can stop him. And so we'll look at these the Marvel movies, and it's like well, Thor and Loki are gods. Like they can be beaten, but like they you just can't come up against them. You can't stop them. Or if an AI were to become so incredibly intelligent and able to control the network, it would have godlike powers. That's not what we mean when we say God. Right. Well, we can right. say God. We're going back to omnipotence, omniscience, omnipresence, omnibenevolence, aseity, all of those things, sovereignty, foreknowledge. That's all the the 
philosophical and Christian definition of who God is. So it doesn't matter how big and strong you are, or even if we were to come across some giant demonic alien that, you know, can crush the sun and the power of his hand. Okay, that's fine. God made the sun. He made all the suns. And, you know, he would have had to have made that thing too. So yeah, let's it's just, important let's get in theology that, that you understand that when we talk about God, we're not just talking about like a very important and powerful person. We're talking yes. about the, the prime, what philosophy calls the prime mover. Meaning right. like that that's you can't get back behind of God. <laughs> like that's <laughs> yeah. that's what we're talking about, you know. So let's move on then. That's the pretty obvious one that God is God and God the Father is also personal by using the term father. But of course it was Jesus who used the term father. Uh, there were many at this time that would look at God as their father, as their pater, to use the Greek word. But Jesus comes along and he uses that Aramaic word Abba. Mm-hmm. And he, he describes a, a unique relationship that he has with his father that is different. So let's talk about Jesus. Was Jesus personal? This is probably the easiest of the personal yeah, things to well, argue. Yeah, and the gospel says, hey, we, we, guys, we, you know, there's that awesome passage. I forget which gospel it's in where it says that the one that we've seen. Into, is it John? Where it says... The one that we've that we've seen and we've touched and we've... that's actually the first verses of First John, the epistle, oh, which I'm we have sorry, seen yeah. and heard and we've yes, handled yes, yes, and yes, we've yes. touched, right? About um, the glory of the but Lord. Similar, similar idea though, where it's like you know, the person we're writing about, guys, we were around, like he was our friend. We we walked around with him, we had meals with him, we saw him in all these different circumstances, you know. So yeah, that's the whole amazingness of the incarnation and the gospels is that, that that God was so personal with us that he was willing to interact with us in that way. I think most people will be like, all right, I can grasp that the father is God easily. I can grasp that the son was personal easily, mm. but it maybe is more difficult for somebody to believe that an all powerful God is also personal and that a man, Jesus Christ is also divine. Mm. However, you can't get away from that. We've already hit some of these passages from last time, but we're just trying to refresh your memory and remind you that this is where the Bible drives us. The entire gospel of John, first of all, it tells us at the beginning, in the beginning was the word and the word right. was with God and the word was God. I had the incredible privilege not long ago of teaching the gospel of John over two weeks in Peru to the Calvary Bible Institute there, had a fantastic time. But doing it so quickly like that really gets you to catch the broad themes of John. And Mm -hmm. the broad theme of John is, who is this and where did he come from? Now, he tells you right up front at the beginning, the word was with God. He was God. He became flesh and dwelt among us. But all along, people are saying, who is this? Who is this? Where did he come from? And there are certain people along the way that acknowledge it. Nathaniel gets it right away, right? You you are the Lord. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus goes, wow, really? That's it? That's all it took? And then you get guys like the blind man later, Lord, I believe, and fell down and mm-hmm. worshiped him. Uh, you get the woman at the well, for example. Then you get to the climax of the book which happens in John 20, after Jesus has risen from the dead and appears to the disciples, but Thomas is not there. And then Thomas finds out that Jesus had come and he says, unless I can see him and put my hand in his wounds and then I will not ever believe. Now, this is important because we are in the same place as Thomas. We're not going to see Jesus. We're not going to put our hands in his right. side or in his fingers. So this matters for us. Well, then in John chapter 20, Jesus appears again. And in John 20, 27, Jesus said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And here's the big drum roll, 20 chapters moment. Right. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. 
And that's both. That's that's the whole point of that book. And it's both of those things in one incredible moment, right? He's saying, my Lord and my God, to a person standing there that he's sticking his finger into like a gouged out, you know, scarred Mm -hmm. hole in him and in his body. Right. So it's, it's, he's personal that that's, that's why he, that's part of what he was doubting is like, yeah, maybe you saw a ghost or something, but I've got to see him and feel him. So he's feeling, he's, he's, that's fulfilled for him, but he's also acknowledging. Yeah. But also (laughs) like, I also saw you die. So that means that if you're here, you you can't just be the person Jesus that I, that I know you also are God. And if you finish out that chapter, John writes, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, verse 31, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus mm-hmm. is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now, I've heard people debate, well, what does it mean to be the Son of God? What does it mean? What does that even talk? We're all, you know, hey, dig it, man. We're all <laughs> sons of God, right? Yeah. And we're going to be making fun of baby boomers for the way they talked for the rest of time, aren't we? <laughs> hey, dig it, brother, right? But... Coming right off what Thomas just said, my Lord and my God, John the writer is saying, that's where I want all of you to get by reading this book, to acknowledge Jesus as Lord and God, your Lord and your God. So it's plain from scripture. There's also passages that have uh, the, the Granville Sharp Rule that talk about Jesus, our God and Savior. And because of the grammar of the text, there's no way to get away from it. Uh, Titus 2.13 says, we're waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Second Peter 1, 1 says, Peter, writing to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that grammar rule you're talking about means that you have to apply those things yep, that to mean, that person in the sentence. It's not talking about, well, there's, there's our God, mm-hmm. and then there's our Savior, Jesus Christ. Right. The grammar forces you to say he's talking about the same thing. So you've got Peter, you've got Paul, who are the two big writing apostles saying, that's how we look at Jesus as our Savior and our God. Mm. So Jesus is God and he's personal. The Father is God and he's personal. Now, Zach, if it's easy for people to agree, okay, I can see that Jesus is a person. Maybe you have a hard time believing he's God, though. Or I believe that God the Father is God, but uh, it's just hard for me to believe that he's really a personal you know, individual. People can't have a hard time believing both about the Holy Spirit, don't they? I think it's important that we demonstrate it in that order too. Because number one, that's the order of, we talked about progressive revelation, remember? Progressively, the Father is revealed to us first in scripture Mm -hmm. and through history too, you know? And then the the Son is revealed after a long time of prophecy and all these things. And then, even though he he didn't come into existence at Pentecost, but he, he is revealed to us, the Holy Spirit is revealed to us later, in some ways, in in fullness, right, in both scripture and in history, and I think it's also interesting that those those increasing progressive revelations become almost I don't want to say harder, as if like oh, but it's the hardest to believe in the Holy Spirit, but that's where you tend to we've got to work the most on them. I think you know we we're talking about the Father, pretty much you know we share those agreements about the, the there is a Father God and He's personal and divine. Well, there's two other non-Christian faiths. That might agree with you on that yeah, one. Yeah, that's right. Right, like, and 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 if if you don't go any further past that, you might think that you guys are all agreeing and worshiping the same personal divine being. You're not, but the, the, you know, you, you that's why you go to the next stage. And say, okay, but he sent his personal divine son. Oh, now now both of those now they're just no 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 that can't yep. far be it from God to ever have a Islam son. Islam no, doesn't or, even like referring to Allah as a father. 
because no, they want for, they don't want anybody to get the idea that he might have a son. Which I mean, come on, yeah. if you'd believe in spiritual warfare, they'll all, refer to him as the, oh, the day star and the son of the morning, though. But that's another conversation. Oh for man, we're gonna podcast. have to we're gonna have to do a series oh, on Islam. One hundred percent. But but now now moving past that though, okay. But then there are some Christians, believers who I think you know know God. They're they're saved. They've confessed Jesus according to Scripture. They 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 are they are okay eternally who might fight you on some of those things about the Holy Spirit. And I don't mm-hmm. think they do it because, you know, I want to be clear, guys, I don't think they do it because they disagree with the Trinity, or, or I don't think they even do it because they don't like the Holy Spirit for some reason. I think they do it because we need to do a better job of, this is why we do these things at the podcast, of disciplining our minds to think about what Scripture actually says about the Holy Spirit. Yeah, take possession of the actual doctrines is what we're trying to give exactly. you again it's here. It's there. Like you, you've got to, maybe in the last podcast, we should read through the whole Athanasian Creed and, and just kind of talk through it because mm. it's so good. Yeah. Like, once you read that, you go, that kind of ties it up real nice, yeah. actually. Yeah. So, yeah, I, there's a lot of folks, I, people that don't believe that the Holy Spirit is personal, for example, that, yeah, God sends his power, but there's no reason to think that the Holy Spirit is a person. I mean, that just seems to be adding extra stuff, you know. And then there are others that believe, well, the Holy Spirit is is just God. But the idea that, you know, it's that he's somehow distinct from the Father and the Son, that's, that's just kind of crazy. Or somebody who believes, I believe the Holy Spirit works in us, but he doesn't come to the same level as God the Father or as God the Son. That was where Arius took it. Mm-hmm. Arius ended up concluding the Holy Spirit is just a nice way to talk about the power of God right. at work. There's a very famous illustration that might come from Augustine, double check me on that, um, but that said the, the Trinity can best be understood as the Father and the Son and the Spirit is the love between them. That is helpful unless you start to think of the Holy Spirit As impersonally. The, right, right, right. That's not good. So, let's, and by the way, when, when you're talking about these things, so these can be ta- there's like a I don't know if a spectrum is the right word, but there there's a these can be taken so far that a person is essentially saying heretical things, right? Like you talked about with Arius. Arius Arius was a heretic. He was saying that, that you know there was a time when the Son was not. He was saying that yeah. the Spirit was just the power of God and, and denied his divinity and his personality. That's that's heresy if you're like outright saying, no, I've thought about this and, and I disagree with this doctrine and this is my other different doctrine. Okay, that's not right. There are lots of people though who if you ask them, do you believe in the Trinity? They'd say, yes, of course. Do you believe that the Holy Spirit is personal and divine? And they might think about it for a minute and they say, well, yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I agree with that. But if you listen to the way that we talk about the Holy Spirit or we interact with the Holy Spirit, we are practically, you know how somebody can be practically an atheist, right? Right. We can become practically believers that the Holy Spirit isn't personal or divine. How can Especially we do Especially the way that some, some uh, Pentecostal groups, who we have plenty of affinity with those groups, oh, sure. but yeah. this is where they need to be taken to task, the way they talk about the Holy Spirit and calling upon the Holy Spirit. I, there's a Christian musician who I love his songs. But there was one of his albums, his live albums, where he opens it up and he's, it's, you know, starting with an invocation. Oh, come on, Lord, we want you to be here. At one point he goes, we summon you, Holy Spirit. And I go, oh, no, 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 no. We we sure don't. (laughs) I can Uh, give that guy the benefit of the doubt and say, I think if you were to step back and think about what you just said, and maybe you don't really quite understand, like, what it means to summon something. Summon is like... Yu-Gi-Oh cards like you know you have to listen to me because I said the magic words and I spilled my blood and here it comes and 
okay, that's not how we deal with God. No, no, no. You know, God because is a person. Because the Holy Spirit is is divine. Yes. He's now, not just a spirit. Oh, yeah. You know, Jesus you know said saying? if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, that's the unforgivable sin. Right. You can't blaspheme something that's not God. And some God. people do the same thing with the personality of the Holy Spirit, too. Again, b- yep. believers who love God and, and love the Trinity. I but just you, feel it. Can't you feel it? Oh, Jesus is, yeah. is here. It's like, well, yeah, I can feel it. If by it you mean his presence, that he is here. Right. Not... Oh, it, the Holy Spirit, that that nice little fuzzy feeling we get. Or like, let's go the other way. We've talked about how sometimes you can go, there's an excess maybe in, and this, it's easy. Everybody likes to, you know, just be be mean sometimes, honestly, to Pentecostal folks because of their excesses. Let's look at it the other way. You may, Let's say maybe you came from a, a theological position where you're a little leery about the Holy Spirit. You can very frequently accidentally... Or begin to, by the way that you act and talk, deny the personality of the Holy Spirit by saying things like, well, the Holy Spirit, you know, yeah, you know, the Holy Spirit is just when you teach a really good sermon and it's good and that's the Holy Spirit. Right. Well, you, sh- you should never expect. No personality any- there. I-, I remember somebody said the Holy Spirit moves so subtly you would never know it that he'd been there. I'm like, well, That's sometimes, not, but read your Bible, kid. Yeah, I mean, right? Or, <laughs> right? or when those people in that camp sometimes will use, slip into, and we've talked about this before. I, I even found myself sometimes when I was younger as a believer, slip into using it because you, you get so conditioned to the idea that the Holy Spirit is kind of just what happens when God the Father does something. That he really you can call becomes, it the Holy Spirit be, if you he like. He becomes more of like a after effect or a symptom or like a little uh, uh, uh you, you said an ooze or almost like a gas that he just you know yeah. in the room somewhere is the Holy Spirit because God the Father is doing stuff. That's not the Holy Spirit's a person. Yeah. He, again, personal pronouns, right? He 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 has lines. He says stuff. Yeah. He does. Let's stuff. hit some of that. I mean, because yeah. we're saying these things, but we want to. Many of you, I believe, are predisposed to believe these things. But mm-hmm. let's open up your Bible and let's let's demonstrate this to you. Jesus, when he's talking to the disciples in the upper room discourse, John fourteen, mm-hmm. he's talking about going away. He's going to die. He's going to rise again. He's going to ascend to the Father. He says, "If you love me, you will keep my commandments." And so, you keep my commandments, and here's what I'll do. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Just right there. If you don't believe in the distinction between the Father and the Son, at least, how do you understand a verse like that? Jesus says, I will ask him, and he will send you this guy. (laughs) Yeah, right. Well, and Jesus is just talking that way. So that they'll understand it. But so he he confused (laughs) the issue. Like, really? So, So who is this helper? It's the Greek word parakletos. Verse 17 says, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. So listen, we see in this passage that Jesus is talking about another person that's going to come. Let's start with that. Yeah, I'm going to send you somebody else. And he's using personal pronouns there be identical in verse Jesus 17. Because Jesus is saying, I am going over here and he is coming here. Now, don't get it twisted. I'm not saying that they're, they're of course, both, they're both divine. So that means that they are both <clears throat> everywhere, right? It's not as if Jesus is disappearing and then the Holy Spirit, but he, but he, they're different enough. Let's put it this way. They're different enough persons that Jesus can say, I am going to go here and he is going to come back. Right. right. He's using personal pronouns. This is the mm-hmm. Greek word autos. Now, some people want to make a big deal out of the fact that these are neuter pronouns. So meaning the Greek has three genders and it's, uh, you know, don't get, don't get excited if you're, you know, one of those people. <laughs> but all right. He's saying there's 
male, female, or masculine, feminine, and neuter, meaning no gender. There's no gender assigned. So, ah, see, ah, it's neutral gender, so it's a, it's a non-personal. Hold on, guys. He's still using personal pronouns. He's using the gender that matches with the word spirit, pneuma. Mm-hmm. Right. So the, the idea that the Holy Spirit is somehow sexless or, or genderless, you know, that that's not being proven by this. All I'm trying to show you is that he's using the Greek word autos, personal pronouns to describe it. He's not saying the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees it nor knows it. That's not the Greek word he's using. He Jesus uses the word him autos, personal pronouns, respect God's pronouns, Zach. He's talking about this yeah, other I mean, person yes, that is going to come. Yeah, absolutely. And you you mentioned in the book of Acts, there are places where it says, and the Holy Spirit said unto us, go over here. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to, to do this. Mm-hmm. The Holy Spirit is a fully fledged character in the book of Acts. Acts 4, 8, or excuse me, Acts 13, 2. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me, Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. You check, catch that? First of all, the Holy Spirit is talking. He uses the Greek word ego, which is where we get the word ego, which means I or me, for the work to which I have called them. He uses the Greek word proskaleo in the first person. He's talking about himself. So listen, the, you cannot read your Bible and naturally conclude that the Holy Spirit is just a force. Mm-hmm. They're using personal language to describe him. So we've got to dispense with this idea that the Holy Spirit, is, yes, it's divine, but there, there's nothing personal about it. When you are encountering God, you're encountering a person. You say, oh, Jesus was there. Let me be technical. The spirit of Jesus was there. You were encountering the Holy Spirit. That's so important. Yeah, and that's it's also when you know you you are indwelt as a believer by the Holy Spirit, mm-hmm. which means, and we've talked about this before um, when we were teaching through things like um, just practical things like about you know spiritual gifts and 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 walking you know with the Lord the in the day to day. Baptism of the Spirit. Yeah, healing. the person of the of the, the technically <laughs> in the Bible, the person. of of the the trinity that you interact with the most is the holy spirit yeah as, that's how as, Jesus a, as, a, as a human it. being walking around the the person when you're speaking to god when you're praying to god we, the bible makes it clear that the holy spirit is the one that you're interacting with who is helping you to pray inspiring you to pray teaching you to pray and then taking those prayers and carrying them to the throne room of god and and you know where Jesus intercedes for us before the Father. So that's the kind of the, I know I'm skipping ahead a little bit to to some other things. That's our answer to the Unitarians is like, where does the Bible say the members of the Godhead are? God the Father is in heaven, always and only. It says the Son of God is seated at the right hand of the Father where he liveth ever to make intercession for us. The Holy Spirit dwells within you. you. I'm not the one trying to, to, split hairs and push push the boundaries that's you you're the one that's just saying well it doesn't mean what it says there right so the holy spirit is personal but do we really believe that the holy spirit is god zach can we really say that, that the holy spirit is divine we looked at first corinthians 2 but let's look at what jesus said in john 14 16 i think we hit this one also but jesus said i will ask the father and he will give you another helper the word for another in Greek is alas, and this is a classic explanation. There's two Greek words for another. Mm-hmm. First one is alas. The other one is heteros. 
Right. Now, you're probably familiar. If we say something is hetero, it means that it is different. different so right. heterosexual is you know sexuality between those of the opposite sex. Mm-hmm. So alas means another of the same kind. Heteros means another of a different kind. So Zach, we're out to dinner and I'm drinking a Coke. And I say, hey, could I have another one? Mm-hmm. And they bring me a Coke. That's Alas, they brought me another one. I would like an, I would like something that is identical to what I have just had. Yes, right, but yeah. if I say, give me another one, and they bring me a glass of milk, I'd be like, what is this? Like, you wanted a drink. You said another one. Okay, but I didn't want another of a different kind. Right. That's the difference. And he uses the word Allah. So who he is about to describe, this helper, the Holy Spirit, is another of the same kind as Jesus, was God and with God. He's divine. He's called divine by Jesus. Do you see how the language of the Bible forces, it's almost like the, the language of scripture. And yeah, this it boxes is, you in. It forces us into this channel of saying, okay, this must be how it is based on what we have from scripture. And this, by the way, is why, guys, when we're encouraging you, like, go read the Athanasian Creed, th- there's a reason that we encourage you to do things. This, we, we believe, as the church, is the culmination of that process where the Holy Spirit brought about for the church and said, look, this is a bunch of guys sat there and looked at all these things and said, it has to be this way or none of this makes sense. It's got to be this. Yep. That's the process. Right. That's the theology, theological process. Because you can see if, what if, like, look at these, these verses. What if it was talking about a personal being who wasn't divine? Yeah. Would it ever talk about him that way? We've got a real problem, right? If, so you're telling me that there's a personal being that is so close to God and the, the Father and to the Son, that they're sometimes talked about interchangeably, but he's somehow not divine. Yeah. There's a real that that is an issue now. You're, you're, you've introduced some sort of bizarre extra appendage into how heaven works. So so which is why when the when the writers of the creed are sitting down, they're like, okay, it can't be that. It, he, he's talked about so interchangeably, and even the even the grammar and the wording is so forcing us into this corner that we have to declare, okay, he he has to be personal, but he also must be divine. Right. Now, what you'll find is those that do not hold to the Trinity typically do not have a lot of time to go through the Bible and talk about things. What they want to do mm. is they want to pick take a couple of verses mm. and try to bend it till it almost breaks and look at really technical meanings of the Greek that don't really apply and completely miss the whole broad strokes of the New Testament mm-hmm. and the Old Testament both. They're not going to be teaching verse by verse through the Bible. If they did, they'd have to spend half their time reinterpreting <laughs> what, it, what it seems right. to say. One more here, and this has actually gone on longer than we intended, but it's a good discussion. Uh, in the book of Acts chapter 5, when Ananias and Sapphira bring proceeds from the sale of their land and say that they brought everything, but they lie about it so they can get prestige. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? So Zach, who are they lying to? The Holy Spirit. And kept back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it you've contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. So so who'd they lie to? The Holy Spirit. But who'd they lie to in verse 4? <laughs> right. So, so in verse 3, exactly. Peter says, you lied to the Holy Spirit. Yep. In verse 4, says, you lied to God. That's interchangeable language. Mm-hmm. He's saying the Holy Spirit, to treat the Holy Spirit this way is to mistreat God because the Holy Spirit is personal and he is God. And mm-hmm. we could run through, for time's sake, we won't, but does the Holy Spirit have emotions? Yes, he does. You can grieve the Holy Spirit. Does he have a will? 
Yes, it does. First Corinthians says he distributes the gifts, each one equally as he wills, mm. right? Does he have uh, an intellect? Yeah, it says that the Holy Spirit is the spirit of wisdom. You can do the same thing for Jesus, emotions, will, mm-hmm. and, and uh, intellect. Yes, God the Father, same thing. These are persons and they are divine. That's why we have this definition that is able to encompass all of those things. Yep. So that's about as much biblical proof as I think is necessary, although there is more to be done. Just kind of reminding you where we are. Before we uh, move on to our next subject here, Zach, what we're describing here is what is called the ontology of the Trinity. Ontos is a Greek word that means being, the nature of something, the fundamental nature of something, ontos. So ontology is the discussion or the science of being. So when we say the ontology of the Holy Spirit, we mean, or sorry, the ontology of the Trinity, we are talking about God as he is, the essential nature of God, who he is in his essence, not so much talking about what he does and his works. That is a reference to the economy of the Trinity. Economia is a word that Literally, it's a compound word means house law, the management, the stewardship of something. We talk about the economy referring to money, the way that everything is steward, how it all works together. And that's the economy of the Trinity. But today we're focusing on this ontology, this this being of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And this is an important distinction to make too, because you can start to look at things like how Jesus is in submission to the Father in the economy of the Trinity and say, therefore, the Son cannot be as as equal to the Father because he said that he's submitting to him. When that's not a description of their essential nature, it's a description of what they do. Mm-hmm. So there's this division between ontology and economy, and today we're talking about the ontology. Yeah, the, the, if, you, if those words are too intimidating, which it shouldn't be, it's okay, you can learn big words. Um, just, yeah, the ontology is the, is, the isness Right, the, yeah, the, the, the it's, it's 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 the what what is God like? Who is God? The nature maybe would be a good word of that, and, and then economy is just the the doing. You know, what, like we said, the house law. The how is heaven ordered? What what happens? You know, within the Trinity, basically. Um, so yeah, but the, those are those sound like intimidating concepts. But the the reason why we we split them is like you said, so that we don't make mistakes. Um, that violate the the doctrine. Correct. So, so in other words, if 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 we focus too much on one or the other and get, lose sight of, well, yeah, that's that's what they're doing, but we can't forget about their nature, right? Or yeah, no, 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 that's 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 the nature, but you also that nature also then is doing this, right? So you just keep them both in tandem and, and you go on. That's why we're spending yeah. some time on one and then we'll do the other. Right. So we needed to to affirm to everybody that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all God. They're all personal. That's the the nature of them. But here's the question that we have to ask. They are one in substance, one in nature, but they are not the same. That That is important to grasp. The Father is not the Son. You may have seen that triangle diagram that we give sometimes. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father. So what distinguishes the Father from the Son, from the Holy Spirit in their ontology? We know, okay, yes, the Father is the one who predestines salvation, the Son is the one who died for our sins, and the Holy Spirit is the one who draws and seals us unto salvation. But those are the operations. Those are the economy of the Trinity. We need to understand how we can hold to a Trinitarian belief in the nature and in the ontology of God. 
This is what is called the relationships of origin between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is an obscure topic in a lot of ways, but this is so important to understand because this, when this gets lost, stuff starts to get shuffled around that ought not to be shuffled around. And that's where, for example, feminist theologians can come in and start tinkering with the Trinity here. Uh, mm. Zach, we've got a little quote here from the Athanasian Creed where it describes these relationships of origin and what distinguishes the members of the Godhead from one another. Why don't you read that quote for us? It says, The Father is made of none, neither created nor begotten. The Son is of the Father alone, not made nor created, but begotten. The Holy Spirit is of the Father and of the Son, neither made nor created nor begotten, but proceeding. And again, that's Athanasius. There you go. So what this tells us, and again, Athanasius is taking the words of Scripture and trying to organize it in a doctrine that we all can accept that's called the Trinity. What distinguishes the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit within the Godhead, within their ontology, is their origin. Sometimes we use the word source. That the origin of the Father is different from that of the Son, is different from that of the Holy Spirit. All of that still falls under the category of of one in substance, three in persons. But what distinguishes the persons is their origin. Now, all of these origins, as we're going to talk about, are eternal. They have never not been happening. It is an eternal, ongoing process. But this is what is distinguishing the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is not just talking about what they do, although there is some connection there. We cannot lose this because this is to separate the, the... Substance. This is divide the substance that the Son and the Spirit will be divided from the Father. You erase the distinction. You create a meaningless sameness where the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all not just equal, but the same. Mm. That they are three identical things. And you start to think, well, why do we even have this distinction in the first place? So knowing all of the, the common Trinitarian errors, we gotta try to understand this. And um Zach, I read a book not long ago, uh called The Three-Body Problem. It was a full trilogy of books, a science fiction oh, I've series. Read, I've read the first one, Three-Body yeah, Problem. It's, yeah, it's pretty good. It had the most bleak ending that, you know, atheists love to like write really dis- depressing endings to their books and yes. try to trick you into thinking that they're, you know, hopeful. And, and that they're very smart. <laughs> yeah, but there's this one <laughs> section in there where he's talking about four-dimensional space. Mm-hmm. And he's trying to explain it in such a way that you can grasp it and use it for the story. Now, the problem is we really don't know what four-dimensional space would look like. But as he's talking about this, he's he's going on and on about how it's an entirely different way of looking at things. And the people that were encountering this, they didn't quite know what to do with it yet. And over time, they had to adjust to it. This is sort of what it's like talking about the Trinity. That, wait a minute, okay, so it's this, but it's also that. Mm-hmm. It's because we're talking about the nature of God. That's way more complicated than 4D space. But you can get this. If you can at least learn to say this and, and be able to state it, over time, the, the understanding will come. So let's begin by talking about God the Father, the one we usually mean when we say God in the Bible, the Father. Athanasius said, the Father is made of none, neither created nor begotten. Okay, so Zach, break that down for us. It's pretty simple, but what does that mean? But he's not, again, this is his relationship of origin is that he in himself, it, like that there's no, he, he isn't proceeding from, from anybody. He's not begotten of anybody. He is, you know, he's just himself. He is the, he is the father. The You've got um, 
Jesus tells us that he's got life in himself. Yeah, the Father has life in himself. He doesn't depend on anyone, in other words. Now, I understand, because I can hear people be like, well, but, but, but when we talk about origin, remember, this is eternal. We're speaking eternally. Yeah. This is not that, well, it start. You, you cannot think in like evolutionary words here. Well, it started out with God the Father. And then, there is no nope, end then. there's no then. It's <laughs> right. eternity. It's right. timeless. You're right. It's always been this way. But when we come to the Father, that... God the Father is is the head. He's the source. Right. And we're not talking in terms of, uh, we got to keep hedging because we want to make sure we keep our bumpers up right. while we're bowling here, okay? Mm-hmm. That the, this does not mean that the Father is greater than the Son or the Spirit. Right. It means that he is the, the source. He's the head. That the Father is not alone. He has always had the Son and the Spirit. However, his origin is in himself. That's who God the Father is, that the Father is not created, he's not begotten, but he does spirit the Spirit, and he does beget, uh, beget the Son. Now, you, there are some people, Zach, if we take a little detour here, there's an ongoing debate in the Trinitarian world that I think these guys might be kind of speaking past each other, to be honest with you. Yes. Uh, if you're not but, in yeah. it a lot, it's kind of like, okay, but I think we're all kind of wanting to go to the same place here. Uh, who they really don't like talking about the relationships of origin because they say that 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 implies that the father is somehow outranks the other two. Mm-hmm. Now, we know that's not true. But then there are other folks that come in and say, well, hold on. If you watch how Jesus wa- acts in deference to his father, the father kind of does outrank the son. And then these folks come back and say, no, that's just in the economy. And then other people here say, no, it's got to be deeper than that. Here's how I think you ought to say this in order to accommodate both groups. The father's relationship of origin is reflected in his economic role as the sovereign, Mm -hmm. that he's the decider. He's the giver of authority. He's also the receiver of authority on that final day, that the father acts in the economy of the Trinity in a way that reflects the ontology of the Trinity. This, again, still, the the three are still one, so we have to be careful how we say this Mm -hmm. here, but... I think that it's perfectly acceptable to say the Father is the is the source of the Godhead, and that's reflected in the economy of the Trinity, without you know violating any of the things that folks have said. I think that does a good job of keeping us more or less in the middle. We're made in God's image, and there's a similar, not the same, but there is similar things happening within people, right? Well, man is made in God's image, and so man has certain roles and certain responsibilities that are that come from the way that he is made. Woman is made in the image of God, so she has certain roles and responsibilities that reflect the intrinsicness of who she is, right? right. So, so that shouldn't surprise us then that since we're a lesser reflection of God, it would stand to reason that God is also doing the same. Like, we're made patterned after him in some way. So when we look at the Trinity, we shouldn't be shocked to see, oh— because of who the father is, he, he does, he does this kind things, of thing, right? Because of who the son is, he does these kinds and of things. And not the other way around. Correct. That, that's the important thing to keep in mind. Right. Now, there's an old phrase that used to be used called the monarchy of the father to describe his role. Mm-hmm. And there are some that have taken that and have gone off in, in a, a bad direction, what's called monarchianism, and said, therefore, the, you know, the son and the spirit are lesser beings. And so then some people just want to abandon that word monarchy of the father entirely. I kind of like it because I think it 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 keeps you closer. It feels a little more edgy, which is, all right, good. We're trying to maintain the Bible's deference to the father. So that's the, the father. He's, he's not made, nor created, nor begotten. Mm-hmm. So 
Let's see, you might say, okay, I still don't quite understand what we're talking about here by these relationships of origin. Let's move on to the Son, Jesus Christ, the Logos of God. And uh, read the quote from Athanasius again there, Zach. The Son is of the Father alone, not made nor created, but begotten. All right, want to break that down for us? Yeah, so this is what we call the eternal generation of the Son. Now, right there, there's a paradox in those two words that could hurt your brain a little bit. But it says, he was not made... Here was not created. There was never a time when there was no, just like we talked about with uh, Ari, the Arian heresy, there was no time when Jesus was not. Yeah, and this, the way that Athanasius, the way that Athanasius <laughs> phrased this mm-hmm. was deliberately to combat what right. the Arians were saying. He's saying, yes, the Son is begotten of the Father, but we know that he was never made or mm. created, but it does say he was begotten. So what does that mean? That means that his relationship between him and the father is described as being begotten. But we know that that could never have taken place in time because of something else the Bible says. So this must be an eternal, ongoing generation of the son by the father. That's their relationship his eternal, of origin. His eternal source is his father. Yes. My children's temporal source is me. Yeah, they came about. Right. There was a time when they were not. <laughs> Our begetting is like God's begetting, not vice versa. Correct. Yeah, well, when when a child is born, he wasn't, and then now he is. Well, like, no, no, no. You have the lesser version. Right. right? You don't have the full thing. Right? You just have the, the bit that looks like it. It's like a kid playing house. Mm-hmm. It's like, no, you don't actually have a house. I know this is your house, but, or my son, you know, the other day was, you know, crawling around on the floor and rah. I'm like, what's up, Sammy? He goes, I'm not Sammy. I'm a lion. He's like, yeah, you're a lion, buddy. He's like, yeah, you're not a lion. A lion is <laughs> right. going to rip your face <laughs> off, right? right? It's it's similar to that. And the, even that illustration has its limitations. But it's like, oh, I know what it means. Yeah, a lion, what? He's got four legs and hair and you know, goes raw all the time. It's like, well, those things are true. But that's so you, small compared to what a real lion in is. in one direction about the reflection that we are of God. We cannot use, we have to be careful not to use ourselves to reason back up to who God must be because we have our source in God. So we're, we are descending from God. We are a creation of God. We can't say, well, I do this, so that must be how God is. Right? Yeah. So, so yeah, I totally agree. I mean, John 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the word. Mm-hmm. So in the beginning was when everything started, there he was. He's always been there, but he's described as being begotten. The son finds his source, his origin in his father, which is why we call him the son. You know, we think of sons and fathers biologically, but the Lord is saying the best way you can describe my relationship between me and Jesus is that of father and son. And we're mm. not just making this up either, by the way. Jesus says this in John 5, 26. He says, as the father has life in himself, period. Or for a second, let's just stop. There's actually a comma, but just, just to stop <laughs> for a second. That's what we just said about the father. Jesus is revealing to us a fact about God the father. He has life in himself, mm-hmm. a saity. He exists on his own. The second half of the verse, so he has granted the son also to have life in himself. So that tells us that the son also has that same category of eternal self-existence, aseity. The distinction is, where does it come from? For the son, it comes from the father. That his relationship with his father makes him equal with the father, except that it is he is begotten by the father. God, put, put another way, God the father has always, is always, and will always be granting to the son to have life in himself. Yes. Which again, 
That's not how it works with us, but it's God. And and before you, and I forget why I'm stealing this point. I think it might be a Lewis point or something. But before you start complaining and saying, oh, well, that's just, you're, it's too complicated. And you're just chopping logic. Look, it is the, na- <coughs> we're talking about the isness of God. I would expect, and you should too, that any God worthy of worship might be a little more complicated, even in his being, <laughs> than, than you. you, right? <laughs> Otherwise, he's just me, like, or he just me or a thing I might have made up. But nobody makes this up, right? It's so complicated that we've actually had to spend a lot of time figuring it out and making sure we've got it right. Yeah, how You else, should expect how, that. How else do you plan to say that the Son of God is eternal, but he also was begotten by the right, Father. Right. How else do you? How can John one one one, John one one, and John three sixteen both be true? Mm-hmm. You you explain it. Right. That we've already had brothers that have gone ahead and done this for us. But let's talk about this for a second, and we'll we'll get into this more maybe next time. But there are others that want to say we should not actually talk about the Son as being begotten because the word that we translate only begotten is actually not meaning only begotten. The Greek word is monogenes, monogenes. Monos just means one or only. And then the question that comes forward is, all right, when it says genes, the second half of that word, only begotten, is it from the Greek word genao, which means to beget? That's how it's been traditionally understood. Or is it from genomai, which means to be or to become? This is important that, okay, if, it's, if it says, you know, God's one and only son. And this is how most of the new translations translate it now, by the way. The King James, God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. New King James, begotten son. NIV, one and only son. ESV, only son. CSB, one and only son. New American Standard, only son. New American Standard 95, only begotten son. So there's difference of translation here, and that's where it comes from. New Living Translation, one and only son. Because the most modern scholars, they say, well, when it says only begotten, really the best way to describe it is only, one and only, only being son. But here's the thing. The creed that we have from those that actually spoke this language and worked in it, we're arguing over the begotten and the unbegotten. Hmm. I, I find it really arrogant to try and undo one of the most important doctrines of the church, the Trinity itself, out of a new word study 2,000 years later. I, I'm, I'm not pleased with that. And in fact, there are some, I don't think most of the best actors do, but there are some that are trying to find ways to not describe God as the son in order to reach Muslims because they don't like the idea of God having a son. So do we really have to? I mean, it could be translated one and only. D.A. Carson wrote a book on this, and his whole point was, even if it is translated that way, we still believe that Jesus is the Son of God, because how else are you he supposed to describe him that way? himself that way. If you want to talk to him, you've got to call him by his name. Yeah. I mean, just like, I don't, yeah, anyway, that's a, I, that's a side issue, but Robert, yes. Robert Lethem, who's my favorite Trinitarian writer, he's the one that steps in and is like, no, you can't just look at the etymology and how you think it's best understood. You've got to look at how those that were existing during the time were talking about this word. Mm. This is how they understood it. You don't get it. Well, it's like the office had this quote all the time. You really need to learn more about your own culture. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> yeah. don't tell me. Yeah. Don't go back and tell him like the only begotten son of the father, that that is his relationship of origin to the father. What does this mean? It means that when we refer to Jesus as the son of God, it's not just a metaphor. It is descriptive of their actual ontological relationship to one another. 
Zach, I remember there was a, a kid that was in our youth group who was from Lebanon. He was Druze, and you probably know more about Druze than I do. It's a it's a kind of a mystery sort of Gnostic type religion. It's odd, like yeah, mystery cult is a great word to describe it. Yeah. You, you don't really know what kind of being blends a Druze is. Christian, yeah. blend Judaism, Islam. It's a syncretism thing. You don't really know what being a Druze is until you've been it for a really long time, and then they explain all the mysteries to you and and very strange beliefs. Um, they believe yeah. that their Messiah is going to be born of a man. Or something at some. Oh, point. Are these the guys it's, that wear diapers or like yeah. very baggy pants. Yeah, because they're afraid they need point, to catch the Messiah. Yeah, this, is, this is a real thing. Yeah, a surprise birth. Is, yeah. I anyway, guess. this kid was real nice. He was in our yeah, youth group. I was an exchange student, but he asked me one time. He wanted to be saved, but the question he couldn't answer that was giving him a holdup was, "How can Jesus be God and the Son of God?" That was his sticking point. These questions matter, guys. Mm -hmm. The answer to that question is because God is three persons. That Jesus was born, or was not born, he was begotten by the Father, eternity past. That is his relationship. He finds his origin in the Father, yet the two are one. The three are one. This is how we have to, why we have to be able to answer these questions. Right. And you see this, remember, the, the economy of the Trinity does not determine rank it does not talk about oh the father is greater than the son and and so on but we do see their relationship borne out in the economic operation of the son he is the one sent to do the work of the father he's the one that's going to receive the father's kingdom he brings men back to the father that's his job we are a bride given by the father to the son the point being that the son does not is still one with the Father. There's still only one God, but the relationship between these two is that of Father and Son, eternally begotten. We call this filiation from the word fili, which means son in Latin. So in the divine substance, he is eternally begotten. This does not imply separation or subordination, but this way we, we make sure that he was not created Right? We don't believe in a created son who, oh, one day he started existing. Or does it, it also prevents us from erasing the idea of the son. That the father, and they're really just kind of the same. They're just kind of, you know, tweedledee and tweedledum, and you can't really tell them apart. No, there's a distinction mm. between these two. The son has always existed out of necessity. That there, there is no trinity without the son. Only he, therefore, could have died for sins as the son. The father could not have come and died for sins. That was not his role. The son, the begotten son of the father was the one that was rightly should have done that, as was ordained before the foundations of the world. Sound pretty good to you, Zach? Uh, it's It sounds difficult to grasp, but very important. And you'll probably notice, and we may be talking about this too as we continue talking about these things, but you'll notice that maybe you're already seeing how changing some of these things could begin to edit your theology and your the way that you walk with the Lord in a lot of different areas. Yeah. You, you, maybe you can already start to see where, oh, well... I have to be very careful about how I talk about this because if I say things like, yeah, God's kind of in charge and then the son is just sort of there and then the Holy Spirit is kind of whatever happens when they do stuff, that could change the way that your your, your theology in other areas, not just the Trinity. So yeah, getting this right isn't, it's not an option to just kind of shrug and say, oh, it's kind of a metaphor. You, you know, you you do have to well, He's like a son. No, 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 right. no, no, no. He right. is the son. Right, right, right. He is the son. So if you're saying, I don't know, what do I, what do I take from this? It's all kind of a lot. The eternal generation of the Son. Mm. That's what you grasp from that. Jesus Christ has always, from the beginning, been begotten by his Father. He finds his origin in the Father. That's their relationship. Once you understand that, getting onto the doctrine of the Holy Spirit is a little easier. Read the Athanasian quote for us there, Zach. It says, The Holy Spirit is of the Father and of the Son, neither made nor created nor begotten. 
different, but proceeding, Athanasius. All right. So the father is from nobody. The son is from the father or of the father. And the Holy Spirit is of or from the father and the son. He likewise is not made nor created. And he's not begotten like the son is begotten. But he is proceeding. We call this spiration, like respiration means to breathe. Spiration, to be breathed out in the eternal procession of the Holy Spirit. So if you can grasp today the eternal generation of the Son and the eternal procession of the Holy Spirit, you'll be on your way. Now, functionally, for your understanding today, this is the same as the Son's relationship to the Father. But it's not truly the same. It's different. It's distinct. The son is not spirated by the father. He's begotten by the father. And the spirit is not begotten. He's spirated by the father and the son together. That's his origin. He finds his origin in the father and the son. In this, again, eternal relationship that does not diminish his deity in the slightest. Now, where do we get this from, Zach? The idea of proceeding from the father. It comes from John chapter 15, if you want to read that verse for us. Yeah, yeah. So it says, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So right. again, it's that it's that word, we, we spirated, which is a just a, another way of saying he's, he's breathed out. He eternally proceeds. Yeah, you got to remember that the word in Greek for spirit, pneuma, is also the word for breath. Mm-hmm. So if you're you know listening, you just go, that's air proceeding from you. They're saying that's the Holy Spirit's relationship to the Father and the Son, that together they breathe out, they spirit, they, he proceeds from them. Now, this was a point of major division in the church. Like, guys, you, you think the Protestant Reformation was bad. That, that was the second big division the church had ever mm-hmm. experienced. In 1054, you had something called the Great Schism that divided the church into East and West. And there were lots of reasons for this. East and West did not like each other, the Rome the Roman Empire, and the churches did not like each other. A lot of that was because the uh, Bishop of Rome was taking more and more authority unto himself, becoming what we would call the Pope. Uh, you know, Martin Luther was not the first one to dislike that. And those in the East were saying, wait a minute, what, what makes you so great? Like, we've got Antioch over here. Mm-hmm. You know, we've got Constantinople over here. Jerusalem. And, and yeah, stuff, right? You know? So yeah. uh, what makes you think you're so great? And there are other reasons why this happened. There's political reasons and so on. But the proximate cause of the split down the middle of the church was the inclusion of the word filioque into the Nicene Creed. Zach, what does filioque mean? And the son. So it's it, basically there was some who said, no, no, no. It's he, he comes from the father, just like the son comes from the father. He, the spirit also comes from the father. And then some said, no, no, no. The, the son is begotten by the father, but the spirit is spirited by the father and the son. And that now we might laugh at that and say, well, okay. You know, but you have to, at least can you get, and this is kind of a point you were bringing out earlier, Tyler, at least can you understand from the people that were closest to the writing of this, the language and the people who walked with Jesus and first received the Holy Spirit, at least can you recognize that they took this very seriously? Yeah. Can let's jump on that you know, just for a like second. They, they were not, they were not, they were not content to just kind of shrug their shoulders and say, well, this is how I understand it, but I guess you have a different understanding. They were willing to go to the mat you know, with their own brothers in some senses, you know, because we, this was a schism that I think you can see, okay, I, I can see how even though they were willing to separate, you could still have a godly Trinitarian understanding of the Trinity and maybe a difference in how you see 
exactly how the sun is is or how the excuse me how the spirit is spirited but also in some sense in in a greater sense they were willing to completely go to the mat they were willing to fight with heretics who denied major parts of these so things. here's the point there guys if you hear this stuff that why does this matter it's not that important you don't understand this mm. if if that's your opinion mm. if you think this isn't a big deal and it just doesn't matter guys the church split in half over this the athanasius was chased into the desert because of this doctrine like this has been fought over and and defended by very smart, very godly people for a long, 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 long time. So you come along in 2023 with your iPhone and say, <laughs> "I don't get what the big deal is." That's your problem, right? That's not everybody yeah. else's problem. Oh, they just they take things too seriously. No, you don't take this seriously enough. Mm. Now, what this was was in the Nicene Creed, which is the you know essentially the Athanasian Creed. It was you know in an older form, but so the Holy Spirit who proceeds from the Father. Those in the West, mostly from Rome, but I mean, there really wasn't a West and East at this point. It was all one church. They got together and they said, we ought to add the word filioque in Latin, which means and the son, into the, the creed. So the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and from the Son. The reason they concluded that is it doesn't say that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Son, but the, the Son sends the Spirit, pours out the Spirit, commands the Spirit. How exactly is that possible if he does not share that kind of relationship? It also, I mean, he says, I will send you the Spirit. Mm -hmm. I will send the Holy Spirit who proceeds from the Father. And they made, I think, a very logical and, and fair conclusion that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Son also. That was the last straw for those in the East. And so that they have made kind of their calling card that the Holy Spirit does not proceed from the Son. They say what you're doing is you're confusing the Father and the Son, mm -hmm. and you're going to end up with just this monotheistic view of God, which it's not entirely wrong. That That is kind of where that will lead if you don't maintain these distinctions. Mm -hmm. But I will say those in the East who have maintained the distinctions very well have a tendency, as I've read and as I've understand it, to emphasize it a little too much, where they forget that there is only one God we're dealing with here. We're not dealing with three pe three people. We're dealing with three persons in one Godhead. Mm. So uh, that's that's where we get that from. We're, we are belong in the Western tradition, the Western canon, and we agree. I don't know that this is insurmountable. I think this could be discussed, but in any case, we're gonna we're gonna teach it this way. So the Holy Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father and from the Son. That's what makes him different. That's what makes him distinct from the Father, as he is breathed out by the Father and from the Son. He's not begotten like a like a child is. He's breathed out. He's breathed out like air, like a spirit should be. And, and it's the two of them that are breathing him out. But yet, again, remember, he is still one with the other two. He is still God, very God. He's still Jehovah. And you see this reflected in his operations as he's the one who testifies to the son, who draws men to salvation. He sanctifies them and prepares them to be the bride that will be delivered to the son. However, Zach, I'll say again, just you know, for those that might be in the comments here, these economic reflections of the ontology never lead us to infer that there is rank in the Trinity, that the Holy Spirit is third place and Jesus is second place and the Father is first. That no, they are one. We can never, we got to keep on coming back to that and not start to think, well, I want to talk to the father because, you know, so I better talk to Jesus first because Jesus kind of has it has an end with the father. And I'm going to talk to the spirit because he's not really the, the top dog, but you know, it, that, that's not how we, we deal with this. The Holy Spirit has his source in another, but he never began and he will never end. So within the divine substance, the Holy Spirit is eternally spirited, breathed out by the father and the son, that distinct personal hypostasis. And the fact that there isn't rank is important. You know, you have to be careful in 
we're not doing the theology specifically just to own people that we don't like. What do I mean by that? Well, there's a lot of people that have come in now and tried to level everything out around the Trinity because they don't like the idea that there's any difference in how the Trinity operates because they know whether they know for they know explicitly or they just intuitively know that that means that there's difference in how people operate, right? Because we're a reflection of the image of God. So what am I talking about? So a lot of feminist theologians will come in and they will try and undermine the idea of the Trinity because, well, that that is connected to the idea that there's a difference between how the genders are. Yeah, you can't have the idea that rank doesn't affect your your right. being, because that's their whole argument. Right. So we need to be careful. The answer to that is not to say, no, there's rank in the Trinity and therefore there's rank in people. No, no, that's not the answer. The yeah. answer is just as in the Trinity, there is difference of economy and difference of ontology without rank. So in people, in the two genders that God created, there is difference of ontology and difference of economy without rank. Yeah. And there are people that really don't like us to make this argument because they say, well, now you're treating the Holy, the Trinity like a, like a society. I, I say you're, you're a little too worried. <laughs> it's like we, we get, we learn about life by looking at who God is. Yeah, absolutely. obviously. And I think that, that well, you're going to fall into this error. No, you don't have to. You can still draw right. illustrations from things. It's kind of like, I think that sort of thing falls in the, uh, you should never use the book of Song of Solomon to talk about uh, God's relationship or Jesus' relationship to the church. Like, well, well why not? Because why it's about yeah. marriage, but <laughs> mm-hmm. Paul said that marriage is a picture of our relationship to Jesus. Therefore, you can learn things mm-hmm. by looking at this. It doesn't affect what it is in its nature. Same thing with, with the Trinity here. So, relationships of origin. What makes the three people of the Godhead distinct from one another? It's their origin. The Father has life in himself. He has granted life in himself to the Son and the Spirit. How? By begetting the Son eternally and by, along with the Son, spiriting the Holy Spirit. Eternal generation of the Son, eternal procession of the Holy Spirit. They are still uncreated, unmade, eternal, inseparable. That's not affected by this. Mm. But you get insight into the nature of the three, not just the work of the three, but the fact that they are distinct in who they are. That... I, I could talk about this forever. We better try to move on here. It doesn't mean that God the Father existed first. It doesn't mean that the Son right. and the Spirit are unnecessary. Oh, God just wanted right. to have some buddies. No, no, no. <laughs> no. And it does not mean that there is rank or subordination in the Godhead. Hmm. And the Creed says that too. Zach, why don't you read this last quote we have here from Athanasius, still the Athanasian Creed. In case you're worried about, well, doesn't that mean that the Father is, is the general and the Son is just the lieutenant? No, no, no. Read what he says, Zach. <laughs> so there is... One Father, not three fathers. One Son, not three sons. One Holy Spirit, not three Holy Spirits. And in this Trinity, none is afore or after another. None is greater or less than another. But the whole three persons are co-eternal and co-equal, so that in all things, as aforesaid, the unity in Trinity and the Trinity in unity is to be worshipped. He, therefore, that will be saved must thus think of the Trinity. (laughs) You know, so often I read books or I'll see things online about people trying to sort out the Trinity and how exactly do we say this? And then I come back to the 1,700-year-old thing. Mm-hmm. I'm like, well, that's actually pretty well said. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So Yeah, it is. He maintains the distinction. There's not three fathers, not three sons, not three spirits. 
He maintains that they are one, they are equal in their rank, that no one ranks the other. They're co-eternal, they're co-equal, which is why we worship the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We don't, well, you got to worship the Father and it's kind of the Son and the Spirit are off to the side. No, 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 no. There's only one God, you guys. For thousands of years, the church has stood on this doctrine, which is, as we've been saying, it is scripture rightly understood. Mm. Zach, folks can get this. Yeah. Right? Uh, Y'all can get this. Can't, let me say this. Can and should. Yes. Can and should. And I think, you know, this is, and I'm not trying to be negative when I say this, but this is a thing I think we may need to work on a little bit both in maybe the American church a little, and also I'll say just in our corner sometimes of the church. It's very, guys, I know that it's really hip and trendy right now, and not just right now, it has been for a long time, to say, oh man, like that, that you're just making it too complicated, man. You just need to f- kind of feel it, and it's whatever, man. You understand it, and I understand it. That That's not as cool as you think it is. And, and And by the way, it's also, let me just say to our Calvary Chapel brothers and sisters too, it's not as cool as you think it is to say, oh man, that's old traditions, man. I'm not about that. I'm about the new wineskins, man. Okay, I am too. The new wineskins have to be filled with the new wine though of the Holy Spirit. It's not just, oh, we get rid of all that old stuff, man. That's just dead tradition. Look, yeah. Not every tradition is dead. Right. Dead tradition, guys, is you you, you have to, you know, uh, do homage to the Bishop of Rome or you can't be saved. That's dead tradition. I'm fine with getting rid of that. You know what's not dead tradition? Is the Athanasian Creed. Yeah. That's somebody who went ahead, did all the Bible study. Right. Laid it out. And everybody in the church said, there it is. Right. That's it right there. Right. And everybody still believes it. Right. Except I, for some fringe little groups. So you you got to learn it, guys. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it can be, like I said, discussing four-dimensional space. Like, this is something that is a little, <laughs> you know, beyond my immediate grasp. Okay, that's fine. But I tell you guys, the more you marinate in this, okay, so one God, easy. Three persons. Also, not too easy, not too hard to understand. They're all personal and divine. God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Great. What makes them distinct from one another? Well, the Father's origin is in himself. The Son is begotten by the Father. The Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. That's what distinguishes them. You can get these things. It's, it ends up being a list of about like just nine or ten things for you to review and to, and to memorize. And there's all, infinite depth within all of those mm-hmm. things to, to talk about them later. But you start by stating the truth. And then you can reflect on it later. And... Um, let me just run through really quick. There's one more subject I want to hit before we finish today. But I, why do we need this? What do we gain from this? Well, you gain assurance that the gospel is real. Mm-hmm. If Jesus Christ was merely a created being, who is he to die for sins? You understand that? If the, if the, the son is not divine, then how is he going to die? How is an angel going to die for your sins? He's how no is his eternal life able to be passed on to you? If the Spirit is not part of the Godhead, then how can he communicate Christ to us? How exactly is he supposed to take God, the Father, and the Son and bring their presence to you? If they're not distinct in their ontology, the Scripture is nonsensical, the Mm. cross makes no sense. We've got to get this, you guys. And yeah, there's more to it. We're going to get into that. But I just want to say, like, you start messing with this, you start messing with the gospel at your peril. Now, in this discussion of the ontology of God, there is one more piece that we need to add to this. And I will say, except for when I have gone looking for Trinitarian doctrine, you don't hear this talked about. 
And I'm not, you know, saying it's a conspiracy. You know, I'm just saying <laughs> it just doesn't get brought up. But when I learned this, this was like the most helpful thing for me. I'm like, how did I not know about this? I need to know about this. So part of the difficulty of discussing the ontology of the Trinity is remembering three and one. It's not three that are sometimes one or one that is sometimes three. Or it's, you know, you look at it one way, it's three and one way, it's another. No, no. He's one and three. Mm. And, and the, the danger is we start to, as we discuss the relationships of origin, especially, to divide the substance. And you, you can only conceive of God in terms of his distinctions and, that, and miss the fact that we are, in fact, monotheists and we believe in only one God, one, one Jehovah God. So what is the concept that protects us against this? It is perichoresis. Big word. Every time I ever teach that, everybody always chuckles in the audience. Like, I'm not going to get that. Yes, you will. Perichoresis. Zach, what is perichoresis? It's it, a Greek word. It's a trans... I'm reading from our notes that we have here, just to give you a peek behind the curtain. It's a translate, transliterated, sorry, Greek word. Yeah, we means, just took the word from Greek and made it an English word. Right, that means mutual indwelling. So this is... It's just a, it's a description for us of how... How, not only how God is three and one, but how the threeness and the oneness work together, how they interact. Yes. Perichoresis, mutual indwelling. This means that each person of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, contains and is contained by the others. This is what I mean when I say, man, you're, you're brushing the, the your fingertips against the ceiling here when you start do Trinitarian doctrine. Like, okay, I don't know how much more of this I can do here. Each person contains and is contained by the other. That each person, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, contains the fullness of God. That the Holy Spirit is not one-third God. Mm-hmm. Jesus is not one-third God. Right. They are each fully God. That the Son and the Father are in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit and the Son are in the Father. And yet, you, while each one is fully God, they cannot be fully God alone. And here's an illustration. Sometimes preachers have to do this, guys. Here's an illustration that might be helpful for you. If it's not, feel free to set it aside. And if you're a theology you know, wonk and you feel like this is missing it, I'm just trying to help people understand this, okay? Zach, do you remember Windows 98? Oh, so well. <laughs> of course I do. A little bit of a that gear was, change there. That right? was probably my first real window. The first computer that we really did a lot with at our house was a Windows. Do 9. you remember those screensavers that you could have? Uh, the Starfield ones. Star- and pipes. Yes. Pipes. Yes, yes, just yes. Pipes would go and the place little. And... Did, did it have a solitaire one? No, that was when you won solitaire. And you could download ones that were like as like a maze. Like it would go mm-hmm, through the maze. Mm-hmm. And, no. Uh, yes. There was one called the Flower Box. Do you remember this one? I do remember the Flower Box. All right. So this was like a, a multicolored sphere and it was 3d graphic and it would be constantly morphing from like a, a cube with really sharp edges and go back to a sphere kind of you know branch out into like a clover shape and then it would like starburst and then it would go back a, a state of constant change and motion and for me this is a, a really good visual aid for the trinity if you can imagine the screensaver as moving from a state of three back to a state of one. That at one point you see it as a single sphere, the next it's it's a sphere with three bulbs and then three distinct spheres, then it comes back again. That That's the threeness and the oneness of God. Except at any given moment, every single infinite division of that transition is fully visible. At every second, the shape is three and one and every point in between. That's perichoresis. That you've got these, you know, if you had these like three, you know, 
persons, these three bulbs of this screensaver, that they come back together and it's one and they branch out and it's three and you take one apart, that one contains the fullness of it, right. but you're only looking at one piece at a time. That this object is is this constant in and out is how I think of it, even though it's it's a lesser illustration, that there's this in and out. God is always simultaneously three and one at the same time. And the constancy or the, the simultaneity of that illustration is what would keep it from being like, because you might hear this say, well, that's modalism. No, it's not. Modalists, modalists believe that God's morphing. That, yeah. you know, he's got the mask on of the Holy Spirit and now he turns into the sun. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about always simultaneously, completely being three and, and one. one at the same time. Right. That's why I like to say it's not wrong. And people say, what is a trinity? Oh, three and one. Yes. But better, three and one. There are three persons in one God. Is God one? Of course. Shema. Right, yeah, yeah. Is God three? Yes, he is. Mm-hmm. So, but you have to be able to have those at the same time. It's like, well, three doesn't equal one. It's like, no, friend, three and one at the same time. Mm-hmm. So four, no, three and one. That's that's that, why that motion helps me understand it. If it doesn't help you, forget it, all right? The spirit is distinct from the father and the son, and yet he's also indivisibly united to the father and the son. Perichoresis is, is this not God shifting back and forth, but that constant state. Where do we get this from? We get it from John 17. Uh, Jesus prayed in John 17. And so many people, here's a little pet peeve of mine. What did Jesus pray for in the high priestly prayer? Oh, they prayed that the church would be unified. You know why people mostly say that is because they're usually trying to push some sort of like interdenominational like joint prayer meeting or something like that. <laughs> Yes, we should be unified, but that's not what Jesus is really getting after in this. He says, I pray that they may be one. Oh, one, one world, baby. Peace, love, right? That's not what he's saying. One as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me. So how does Jesus describe his relationship with the Father? He says, Father, I am in you and you are in me. They contain one another. The Father was in the Son. That's why Jesus could say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Even though we believe in this distinction, that the Father and the Spirit were in Christ, and yet Jesus Christ is also in the Father, and they were in the Spirit. When the Holy Spirit comes to you, you're not just receiving the Spirit, you're also receiving the Father and the Son, because the Holy Mm, Spirit mm -hmm, contains mm -hmm. them all. Do you understand what I'm saying? This is why, you know, baby theology says, I asked Jesus into my heart. Adolescent theology says, no, you invited the Holy Spirit in your heart. Mature <laughs> theology comes back and says, actually, you did invite Jesus right. into your heart because it's, the Holy Spirit contains it's the, the meme, Son. The midwit meme with the, the right at the beginning, there's a, a not so smart person that says, you know, I asked Jesus into my no, I'm not saying it's not smart, but you know what I'm saying. I asked Jesus in my heart, and then there's the big bell curve, and it's the, oh, I'm very smart, dude. No, no, no. You, you only and it brings it right Spirit, back. <laughs> brings it right back to the Jedi Master level of theology that says, ah, but however, in asking the Holy Spirit into your heart, you have asked Jesus into your heart because. I and the Father are what I in me and you in, you know, like it. it yeah. It, there's a sense of that even at the level of their being, they are participating in one another. Yes. They're, they're not. Is that fair to say? Like it's. Yes. A, there's, there's, a, there's a level of. Mutual indwelling is yes, the word. There you go. Yeah, yeah. They are mutually indwelling. That's what perichoresis means. Literally the translation, mutual indwelling. That when you see Jesus. You're also seeing the Father and the Son because he contains those yeah, other he three. He who has seen me has seen the Father. Yeah, yeah, but 
in another sense, the, that son that you're seeing is also contained by the father. And so does the Holy Spirit. And likewise that. It, this is how we can make sure that we are, th- th- this is where for me, like we take from all the data points and now we bring it together and we've got the mystery. And it's like, this is our God. This is why we live as if perichoresis was real. But if we don't articulate the doctrine, we can start to doubt the benefits we get from that doctrine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's, right. that, that's important that Jesus is fully God and lacks nothing. This is why Colossians 2, 9, Jesus is, Paul says about Jesus, in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. You know, Wait a minute, the Holy Spirit came upon him and the Father was still in heaven. Yeah, but perichoresis, man. Mm-hmm. The, where the son is, there is the father and there is the son. They're not the same, but they indwell one another. Which tells us in Ephesians 3.19, Paul says, I pray that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. The Holy Spirit is the one who fills us. Yet, but when we have the Holy Spirit, we have the fullness of God. Each person of the Godhead has the fullness, and yet it is incorrect to think of them of having the fullness alone. That's the three in one, mutual indwelling. The Father is in the Son. The Son is in the Spirit. The Spirit is in the Father. The Father is in the Spirit, and on we go. So it is not right to think of Jesus as being less than the Father, or the Spirit as less significant than Jesus Christ. That you, you can't, it's, it's almost nonsensical to talk like that. It's not, right. but it, it, you can start to become nonsensical. It's like, well, I don't know if uh, the son would be okay with that. You know, the father said this. I don't know if Jesus likes that. Like, what are you talking about? This father is in the son, right? Each person possesses the others in himself. It's constant motion in how I understand it, yet it's motion that is arrested at every possible moment at all times. Three and one at the same time. If you're moving back from three to one to three to one, Three and one at the same exact time. You and me and I and you, as Jesus said. So we've got to keep this concept in our heads to keep us from dividing the substance of the Trinity. Because when you discuss the Trinity, you discuss them individually. You also encounter them individually. You read about them individually. And there are some that are like, no, no, we, we got to come back. There's only one God. We shouldn't talk about them like that. Well, you're permitted to discuss God that way as long as you recognize that the three are one and that the one is three. We can discuss the persons separately as long as you realize that they are not separate from one another. God is three and God is one, especially next time when we get into the economy of the Trinity and we start talking about submission and we start talking about uh, doing things in order to serve each other. You can't get it in your head that there's rank because at the same time, it's, it's one and three. This is the big mystery, guys. Mm-hmm. You're going to encounter that at every level of this, that all of our discussion of the Godhead has to recognize this, this ontology of God, that there is one God, one substance of God who is three persons. What makes them distinct? Their relationships of origin. The Father has life in himself. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. The Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son. And the doctrine of perichoresis, they mutually indwell one another. They are three and one. That's who God is. Mm-hmm. And man, hallelujah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> hallelujah. What a, what a God that we have the privilege of serving and knowing. And, you know, when people want to attack the Christian faith and, you know, you believe in God, what a silly thing to believe in a great Santa Claus in the sky. It's like, dude, you don't even know what I believe. <laughs> right. Like, well, why is God just so like, it's always just like, you know, basically the village elder of, of heaven. It's like, nah, nah, that's not what I believe. Mm. Well, come on. I know what the Christians believe. Do you? Do you though? Well, I describe something like this. You go, well, that sort of sounds like the kind of cosmic being we should expect, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. 
So you, Christian, do you understand these things? Like, I know you said a lot of things and I, I don't quite wrap my head around all of it. That's all right. Do you understand that there's one God? That there's three persons, that each one is equally God, that they're distinct from one another mm. in their relationships of origin, and that they mutually indwell one another. That's that's it. Just start by stating the truth, and then you'll get to understanding the truth. Zach, you got any any closing thoughts for us to bring it to an end? No, just I'm I'm excited about going through all this because I know where we're headed with some of this, which is if you're listening to all this right now and thinking, okay, that's fine, I suppose. Yeah, I agree with all that, but so what? There is some big so what's that come from these doctrines. And, and yep. the appli- there's application to the doctrine of the Trinity, just like all of our doctrines, right? That, that actually touches your daily life. Uh, and so, yeah, learning this stuff isn't just an academic important thing of, yeah, I got to check this box off. No, it actually does change the way that you interact with God if you know him as he is. Yeah. So next time we're going to get into the economy of the Trinity. What what do these persons do? How does that relate to? to you and I. Are there any lessons to be drawn from that? How do we talk about these things without denigrating the ontology of the Trinity? These are good questions. Uh, Next time will affect you and me a little bit more. And then we're going to talk about some things specifically related to Jesus. We're just laying these things out probably two or three layers deeper than you're used to. Mm. So that way you can know what this is and you'll be able to come back and listen to it again uh, at various times and try to grasp a little bit more of it. But uh, for today, we, we have a pretty good sense of the being of God as he has revealed himself to us. So thanks for tuning in. We will see y'all next time on the Ironworks podcast. Thanks guys.